You've probably heard a lot about fish oil. It's one of the most common supplements available after all. But have you wondered if you should be taking it and why you might want to think about it? The simple answer is yes. If you don't have access to fresh fish several times per week, you can likely benefit from supplementation and may even need to. I test many of my patients' fatty acid levels and have found that the overwhelming majority of my patients are low in omega-3s. Omega-3 fatty acids are essential cornerstones of human nutrition. They are deemed essential because we need them for proper health, much like certain vitamins and minerals, but unfortunately we can't produce them on our own. As a result, our only option is to consume these fats either through our diet or through supplementation. Omega-3 fatty acids are known to benefit cardiovascular health, support healthy brain function and cognition, and have been proven to maintain a healthy inflammatory response. For all these reasons, achieving the proper balance of omega-3s is an important health strategy, one for which most people require supplementation. Simplified. Fish oil can help improve your cholesterol, glucose, help your memory, reduce pain, even headaches and menstrual cramps. I typically start my patients with 1 to 2 grams or 1,000 to 2,000 milligrams per day of combined eicosapentaenoic acid, which is EPA, and docosahexaenoic acid, which is DHA daily. Our Your Longevity Blueprint Omegas are stabilized in vitamin E oil and rosemary extract is used to ensure maximum purity and freshness. This exclusive fish oil is purified, vacuum distilled, and independently tested to ensure heavy metals, pesticides, and polychlorinated biphenyls, PCBs, are removed to undetectable levels. Plus, our fish oil has the shortest sea-to-shelf time, meaning from fish to bottle or capsule, of only 3 to 6 months, as compared to the industry average of 18 to 36 months. Seriously, that means most of the fish oil you buy over-the-counter is old, oxidized, rancid, and not helpful. That fish oil purchased over-the-counter could be 3 years old already before you ingest it. Yuck. With over 10,000 published studies in the last three decades, EPA and DHA from fish oil are among the most researched natural ingredients available and have a long history of safety and efficacy. Check out more product information on our website, yourlongevityblueprint.com, and use code OMEGA3s for 10% off. Now let's get back to the show. It's pretty classic IBS symptom. Top of the line would be bloating after meals. Welcome to the Your Longevity Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Gray. My number one goal with the show is to help you discover your personalized plan to build your dream health and live a longer, happier, truly healthier life. You are about to hear from Dr. Narala Jacobi, who is the SIBO doctor presently in Australia. I recently completed her practitioner certification program and have been listening to her podcast and I just had to have her on the show. So today she'll be sharing about the importance of a healthy diet, microbiome, and we'll dive into SIBO and CFO. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of the Your Longevity Blueprint Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Narala Jacobi, who is a naturopathic doctor and internationally recognized expert on small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, also known as SIBO. She's the creator of the SIBO Biphasic Diet, a resource that has helped tens of thousands of SIBO sufferers around the world. Dr. Jacoby is the host of the SIBO Doctor podcast and the founder of the SIBO Doctor, an online educational platform that includes a practitioner certification program, which I recently completed. She's also the medical director of SIBO Test, providing innovative testing options for SIBO and IBS. 
Dr. Jacoby is known for her systematic and effective approach to diagnosing and treating SIBO and other functional digestive disorders. Having received her naturopathic doctorate in 1998 from the esteemed Bastyr University in Seattle, USA, she brings more than two decades of clinical experience and expertise to her clinic, the Biome Clinic. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jacoby. Thanks so much for having me. So you are the SIBO doctor, so we must discuss SIBO today, but I think we should start with the importance of gut health in general. My listeners know, they've heard this several times from me before, that in chapter one of my book, Your Longevity Blueprint, I'm comparing the foundation of the home to the gastrointestinal system in the body. So I'm sure you agree that our gut is our foundation of health. So today's show is going to focus on that, improving gut health for whole body health. But I'd like for you to share more or less how or why. So specifically, how does gut health improve overall body health? Yes, and it's uh, probably a good place to start there. As you mentioned, you know, we, not just functional practitioners, but naturopathic doctors and practitioners around the world, we believe that the gut is really the root of the tree. And this is often a sort of a metaphor we use that the, you know, the tree cannot be healthy unless the gut is, or the root is healthy. So, so that's really the foundation of naturopathic medicine. I really fell in love with the gut when I became a naturopathic doctor because it involves virtually every other system. Uh, you know, the whole complicated symphony of events that that takes place in terms of digestion and immune system and your endocrine system, your nervous system. It involves all the other systems just to turn non-self into self, right? So food, we eat food and miraculously, we extract all the raw ingredients to power our bodies. So not just that, but we also have this interface where we have this connection to our immune system and how the immune system reacts to potential pathogens and also our microbiome. So it's like you never get bored reading about the gut. It's just always an incredible source of amazement of how we actually process foods and extract nutrients and also become more resilient to pathogens. But more specifically, the obvious is if you're not digesting right due to different reasons, SIBO being one, but if you're not digesting your food right, you're not actually extracting those nutrients and ingredients that we know are absolutely essential for health and longevity. Then obviously also the microbiome, which is, you know, for all intents and purposes, another organ. It's actually considered an organ because it releases so many different metabolites and hormones and neuropeptides and different uh, substances that influence how we actually function in the world. So from mitigating, you know, inflammation to blood sugar control to all, all these different aspects that we associate with health and longevity are um, influenced really by the microbiome. So I know you do specialize with digestive disorders, SIBO being one of them. So let's kind of transition to that. So what is SIBO and kind of how does it relate to irritable bowel syndrome? Okay, so irritable bowel syndrome is the umbrella term given to basically the syndrome of uh, different digestive issues related to irritable bowel. SIBO is considered by some to be about 60 to 80% of people that have been diagnosed with IBS is, could be considered SIBO. And SIBO stands for small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And it's a condition where bacteria that are normally found in the colon have, for whatever reason, overgrown in the small intestine. And that's really a terrible place to have a bacterial overgrowth because, as I just mentioned, it is the, the very interface where we absorb nutrients, where we 
activate our immune system, where all these very, very crucially important functions occur. And so when you have bacterial overgrowth there, you not only have digestive symptoms, but you can also end up with other systemic symptoms. And I know there are lots of causes, which again... Kind of talking before the show, we could do a whole episode just on causes. I had, you know, it took a 17, probably like 17 or 18 hour course of yours. So I know we can't dive into all the root causes, but can you just mention a few of the root causes? Yeah. And you know, this is really my sweet spot when I talk to practitioners and when I talk to patients, it's yes, SIBO is bacterial overgrowth and you treat it by treating the bacterial overgrowth. But more importantly, you must address underlying causes to really cure it for good, because it is a chronically relapsing condition for some. What I've done is I've sort of categorized all the different groups of causes, because it's not just one cause, right? It's a lot of different things that can lead to bacterial overgrowth. So if you think about motility disorders, right, anything that impacts the normal motility of the small intestine, And uh, you normally, under normal circumstances, have several different mechanisms to clear out the small intestine from potential bacterial overgrowth. It's just a natural either cleansing wave or vagal toning, you know, vagal influence that causes normal contractions. So lots of different ways that the body helps to clear the small intestine because it's so vitally important that bacteria don't overgrow. So these kinds of safeguards are in place that the body has. So if you have a condition that affects motility, such as hypothyroidism or having had a case of food poisoning before that damaged your what's called migrating motor complex, which is a really specific form of motility in the small intestine, or you have mold illness that's that's causing gut toxicity and slow motility, you know, so many different causes that cause slow motility. So and for each cause, it's a different treatment. And then you have also another category of underlying cause, which I sort of call digestive deficit, which some of the first line antimicrobial aspects or shields that the body has in place are deficient. So, for example, hydrochloric acid, which is stomach acid, and it's sort of like the vat of acid that kills bacteria that are found in food or oral bacteria are also killed by that. And if you are chronically stressed or you have a genetic condition that causes hypochlorhydria or low stomach acid output, then that is compromising your ability to kill bacteria and other digestive juices as well. Bile and pancreatic enzymes also function in that capacity. The other one is obstruction, what I would call obstructive situation, which is not really an obstruction of your small bowel, but it's an anatomical deviation from normal because of scar tissue. So let's say you've had a hysterectomy or you've had your gallbladder taken out or you had any number of abdominal surgeries or endometriosis. And it's it's a condition or a, you know, when surgery happens or endometriosis happens, it triggers adhesions and scar formation. And that can then attach on the outside of the small intestine and create what I call a kink in the garden hose. So things are not moving effectively through the small intestine and also leave bacteria in the small intestine. So these three different categories of causes encompass a huge number of different conditions. And that's why some people, you know, they're sort of in this merry-go-round of treatment and relapse and never really get to the bottom of what's causing their SIBO. And that's been really my mission with a lot of the trainings I, I do. What about medications? 
Can medications also contribute? Yes. So these are mostly substances that slow motility. That's for the most part. Opioids and uh, certain painkillers and morphine and those kinds of things can really affect motility. But that's more minor because it's a temporary situation for for many people. And that can be um, remedied by just replacing that medication with something that doesn't cause that. Can you differentiate different types of SIBO? And then we can kind of get into testing as well. But I know it's not just like you have SIBO. There are different types of SIBO that can be treated a little differently. So can you kind of differentiate those for us? Yeah. What we know right now is that there are three types of gases that are produced by different organisms. So you have your main hydrogen producers that are typically produced by specific type of bacteria like E. coli and Klebsiella. And then you have methane gas that's produced by uh, methanogens, which is a different type of organism. And then you have hydrogen sulfide gas, which is produced by hydrogen sulfide producers like desulfovibrio and fusarium. So these types of gases, it's important to know what kind of SIBO you have because each type of gas requires a different type of treatment. Um, Hydrogen sulfide and hydrogen are similar in treatment, but the archaea or methanogens require a, a slightly different one. So typically when we see hydrogen dominance, on a breath test or a higher hydrogen than anything else, it usually means that the person has either diarrhea or a normal stool pattern. Typically with methane, we see almost always constipation. And then with hydrogen sulfide, which really I I don't even often talk about. Well, I do talk about it, but because there's only one lab in America that tests for this, it's difficult because I wish there were other labs to really corroborate some of the, you know, the evidence of and the efficacy of that type of testing, because we just don't have enough labs available to offer that test. So usually I just talk about hydrogen and methane because they're very easily accessible through testing. So then when you talk about different types of treatment, it's pretty easy. So it's either hydrogen or a mixed hydrogen methane, or it's methane dominant, what we now call emo or intestinal methanogen overgrowth, which typically causes constipation. Yeah, thank you for differentiating those symptoms too. What about other clues in general? I know you mentioned a lot of clues in your course that could cue a practitioner into knowing, you know, that their patient has SIBO. So for listeners, what are some of those clues? Yeah. So, for example, um, if the person is eating a lot of or getting a lot of symptoms with a high fermentable fiber diet, so what we call the FODMAP diet, if you are eating a lot of very healthy, wonderful vegetables, but you're getting very gassy, very bloaty after meals, that may be a clue. Or if the practitioner actually prescribes a type of fiber and the person reports more bloating immediately after taking it um, or prebiotic kind of bloating. So that's a big clue. Another one is if you have been prescribed antibiotics for an unrelated condition like sinusitis, but lo and behold, your IBS symptoms uh, resolve or improve greatly. That's also a clue. So sometimes those are not necessarily diagnostic, but they're, they're great little light bulbs for the practitioner to help them to consider testing for SIBO, which is just so easy these days. I like those. I know you also mentioned, you know, symptoms that worsen with sugar alcohols. That was me. That was kind of how I ended up finding Mm -hmm. that I had fructose intolerance and SIBO. And then you also, I think, mentioned something like patients who are diagnosed with celiac who go gluten-free, you know, who continue to have symptoms. That's a cue. There's still something else going on that hasn't been found and treated. 
Yeah, that's probably the broadest of all of those clues because, you know, you could have other reasons. You could have LIBO. LIBO is large intestine bacterial overgrowth. And typically the treatment is not necessarily very different, but I think that dietarily we would probably treat that a little different. Uh, what are some other conditions that SIBO is associated with? I was really shocked to hear these in your course. Yeah, so these are not conditions that have caused SIBO, but there are a number of conditions that are just highly associated with SIBO, meaning that they're often seen together. So if you have a if you're a practitioner listening to this and you have somebody, for example, with acne rosacea, that's actually one of the four that I would consider test for SIBO, regardless of the degree of digestive symptoms because it's so highly associated with SIBO. Another one would be interstitial cystitis um, or fibromyalgia. And now, as the years go on, we have hundreds of conditions that are associated with SIBO, varying degrees. So you already mentioned some of the symptoms of different types of SIBO, but can we expand on some of those just general symptoms that patients with SIBO may be experiencing? Yeah. um, So it's uh, pretty classic IBS symptoms. And I would say Top of the line would be bloating after meals and pretty, pretty soon after meals, not just hours after meals, but like 10, 20 minutes after meals, your bloating starts. That would be probably the primary symptom. And then we have a lot of bowel issues in terms of either too fast or too slow constipation or uh, loose stools. Then we have also abdominal hypersensitivity or abdominal pain. And sometimes that's gas pain. Sometimes that's just the hypersensitivity. Uh, we also have a lot of upper gut symptoms like reflux or gastritis. Uh, those types of symptoms are really, really common as well. You might not know this, but building a healthy gut or gastrointestinal system is one of the most important things you should be working on to maintain your health and longevity. That's why actually in my book, Your Longevity Blueprint, I devote the entire first chapter to the gut. I like to compare the gut or gastrointestinal system to the foundation of your home. You have to have a strong gastrointestinal system upon which to build great health. So with that in mind, I want to share a few tips to help you do just that. The first step with improving your gut health is to clean up your diet, removing inflammatory foods, foods you may have sensitivities towards, and treating gut infections. Like I mentioned, I get into this in a lot more depth in chapter one of my book. Once you've done that, however, there are also some amazing nutrients that exist to help you heal further. Two of my favorite Your Longevity Blueprint combination powder products for helping patients heal their guts are called Gut Shield and GI Support. Gut Shield contains several important ingredients, including glutamine and zinc. Glutamine is the most important non-essential amino acid for gut healing, and zinc is a top mineral for gut healing as well. Gut Shield also contains N-acetyl-D-glucosamine and aloe vera. N-acetyl-D-glucosamine is a mucin precursor that has been shown to increase the production of mucus within the GI tract. This is beneficial in coating the tract and protecting it. Gut Shield also contains deglycerized licorice root extract, also known as DGL, a form of licorice root that does not contain glycerizin, which can raise blood pressure. Licorice has been known to treat and heal ulcers. It works as a demulcent to soothe the irritated tissue. It's antispasmodic, anti-inflammatory, and anti-allergenic. Aloe vera has been used throughout history to promote a normal inflammatory response. You may have used it on your cuts, scrapes, or burns as a child. Studies have shown that aloe vera is also specifically beneficial to the gastric mucosa, in part through its ability to balance stomach acid levels and promote healthy mucus production. All these gut healing nutrients are packed into one little scoop of powder that can be added to a beverage of your choice or mixed into a smoothie. I recommend patients consume this consistently for at least three months for gut healing. 
My second favorite product for gut healing is called GI Support, a gut healing protein powder containing glutamine as well. The difference here is that GI Support is also loaded with natural anti-inflammatories like turmeric. It also contains arabinogalactins, which serve as prebiotic fiber. And it contains green tea extract, also known as EGCG, a potent antioxidant that further helps to reduce inflammation. It's the Cadillac of gut healing powders because it has protein, the amino acid glutamine, prebiotics, anti-inflammatories, and antioxidants all in one scoop. And yes, it can be combined with Gut Shield. Consider taking the Synergistic Blend daily while focusing on cleaner eating. These products aren't needed forever, but they sure help expedite the healing process of your gut lining. Check out more product information on our website and use code HEALGUT for 10% off either product. That's Gut Shield or GI Support at yourlongevityblueprint.com. Now let's get back to the show. What if someone can't tolerate sulfur-rich vegetables and foods? What what could that tell us? Well, that can be, you know, that's a really complicated uh, situation because <laughs> it's it can be an overgrowth of sulfur. We call them confusingly, we call them sulfur-reducing bacteria, but that's a chemical term. But they're they're sulfur or hydrogen sulfide producing bacteria. Sometimes when they're overgrown, it can mean that the patient is sort of sensitive to sulfur-containing vegetables and foods in general. But it is a more complicated issue because sulfur is such an important aspect of everything from connective tissue, integrity to detoxification to brain health. It's a very, very important mineral. We look at complicated pathways when we're looking at things like thiol sensitivity and sulfur sensitivity in general. But just simplifying it for the gut symptoms would be to look at hydrogen sulfide producing bacterial overgrowth. Sure. Okay, let's transition to testing options. You kind of already alluded to the breath test, but can you can you kind of break that down, how we do the breath test, why SIBO can only be tested in the breath, and then kind of what results we're looking for, for a positive finding on that? Okay, so the breath test is based on the fact that when you, when you consume uh, a test substrate uh, like lactulose or glucose or fructose, these substances are very readily fermented by gut bacteria. And what happens is you're taking the substrate, uh, bacteria fermented, produce hydrogen or methane gas. That's absorbed into your circulation, that's carried to your lungs, and you're uh, breathing it out. And that's a timed event. So it's a, a really easy to do at home test where you basically do a prep diet for one or two days, depending on if you're constipated, it's recommended that you do the prep diet for two days, not just one day. And then you have an overnight fast. And in the morning, you do the test. And it's basically, you consume the sugar and every uh, or test substrate. And every 15 to 20 minutes, you're sampling your breath in a tube. And that then gets sent to the lab. And we can determine from at this timed event where in this three hour breath test, your gases, if at all, have risen. And that can give us the indication of methane SIBO or EMO or regular SIBO, which is hydrogen dominant. Thank you. And then what about findings on a stool test? So let's say a practitioner orders a stool test because this patient has IBS. So they're first kind of looking in the colon before they you know, consider doing a SIBO test. What other kind of clues on a stool test might lead the practitioner to know that SIBO should be next explored? 
Yeah, and it's really important to preface this by saying that a stool test cannot diagnose SIBO. It's not like you can do a stool test and E. coli is high and therefore say, oh, E. coli often also causes SIBO. Therefore, this person also has SIBO. It's just not possible to do that. The bacteria in the stool are very, very different from um, the small intestinal ones. So there are a few, I'd say, also sort of kind of red flags that would indicate, uh, especially if the symptoms fit, to consider a breath test next would be if your patient has very high levels of short-chain fatty acids which are microbial metabolites uh, and products of fermentation of fiber. So that could be could be that it's SIBO, but it could also be that your patient has large intestinal overgrowth, which would then be evident on that CDSA. So that would be my primary one. You know, I, I sometimes also see people that have higher levels of secretory IgA, which would indicate a leaky gut uh, scenario and SIBO causes leaky gut. So that could be another potential, but that's not as red flaggy as maybe the short chain fatty acids. Sure. Or the yeah, bacteria in general. What about the, I can't ever pronounce this, but the methanobrevibacter. <laughs> um, oh yeah. Species, methanobrevibacter. Yeah. 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 The thing about methanobrevibacter, which is the main species that produces methane and they are real survivors and they're actually normal inhabitants of the gut microbiome. It's not that these are pathogens, really important to remember. When they're overgrown, they produce methane and they do that by actually concentrating hydrogen gas. For every methane molecule, it requires four hydrogen atoms. So it can concentrate it effectively, but that causes constipation. It's not uncommon to see methanogens in the stool, but if they're really overgrown, they can cause constipation in the large intestine, uh, and they won't have necessarily been overgrown in the small intestine. In a way, it doesn't matter because wherever you find methanogens, they can cause constipation. So the treatment would essentially be the same for that. Well, let's move on to treatment options, and maybe we could start with diets. So can you kind of describe, I know you've created the SIBO biphasic diet and kind of tell us a little bit about that, essentially what foods should be restricted and avoided, which I think are kind of most important, and also discuss the elemental diet as the first part of the treatment process. Elemental diet, people should just forget the word diet with that because (laughs) it's actually not a diet that you follow. It's an antimicrobial treatment. It's not something that you do in addition to antimicrobial treatment. So anyways, but the the primary diet and the reason I developed the biphasic diet is because it was very confusing for patients, you know, what to eat, what when they're going through treatment and even people on a strict FODMAP diet were still symptomatic. So what I did is I devised this treatment, which is a three-month treatment, into two parts, which is phase one and phase two. And phase one really was aimed at the practitioner um, seeing this patient for the first time. They're they're suspecting SIBO, they're ordering a breath test, and they want to just start on the most symptom controlling diet there there is, which is, in my opinion, phase one of the biphasic diet, which basically is no starches, no allergens, and basically just low FODMAP vegetables and protein. And then they would also do digestive support because a lot of people do need that, whether that's enzymes or bitters or things like that. And then also just sort of a 
a gut soothing powder or um, just to reduce the inflammation a little bit. And what I found when I did that is people already, when they came back the second visit and wanted to review the breath test result, they were already much better. And we had already two, three weeks of treatment. So then they were ready for antimicrobials. Because when you have, you know, when you start antimicrobials too soon in an inflamed system, you can actually kind of trigger uh, some bad reactions. So I found that to be more effective. So people then move from phase one diet to a more generous diet that includes more grains and more fruit and uh, more fermentable fibers on purpose because we want to actually feed the bacteria a little bit while we kill them. So it's tried and proven method to uh, really help not just symptomatic control, but also, you know, the efficacy of treatment in general. Sure. Yeah, I guess that's kind of what where I was going with kind of the first part of treatment is really getting the patient to change their diet. Can you expand on you? So you referenced just in case our patients aren't familiar with what low FODMAP vegetables are. Can you mention some of the low FODMAP vegetables that are allowed and then what some of the high FODMAP more trigger vegetables are? And, you know, just uh, from looking at them, you wouldn't be able to tell. Right. (laughs) So they're all part of a wonderful plethora of vegetables. But um, high FODMAP, start with high FODMAP. So high FODMAP or FODMAP stands for, let's see if I can still do it, but fermentable oligosaccharide, disaccharide, monosaccharides, and polyols. So, so these are all substances in these foods, not just vegetables, but foods in general, mostly plant-based food that are very fermentable by bacteria, as the name implies. So top of the list of very high FODMAP food would be garlic and onions. Almost everyone will have some sort of bloating reaction to those uh, two foods. But other high FODMAPs would be uh, celery, for example, or green beans. And then in the low category, you have tomatoes and lettuce and kale and uh, bok choy and sort of those kinds of greens. So you have very innocent looking vegetables actually be the cause of a lot of problems and so it's always nice to have a to have a list of those really spelled out you know the whole FODMAP movement was instigated by Monash University here in Australia uh, where I am and they have really revolutionized this whole idea of FODMAPs uh, for IBS in general but the problem with with staying on low FODMAP diets for a long time is that obviously you are also compromising your normal microbiome that lives in your large intestine. And that's where most of the bacteria are meant to be. And if you stop, well, you're not going to stop feeding them with a low FODMAP diet, but you're not optimizing them. So I always say that even the biphasic diet is a temporary solution for this problem. And then can you kind of compare this to the elemental, I don't want to say the word diet, elemental (laughs) treatment treatment program? Well, the elemental diet, it is called that. I mean, I was just saying it because so many people are confused because they think it's also a diet that you do alongside other SIBO treatment. But what we found is that the elemental diet, which is basically a formula, a pre-digested formula that has free form amino acids. So not something like hemp or whey or pea protein, uh, but free form amino acids that have been manipulated in the lab so that they're free form, very, very easily absorbable. And then it contains glucose and it contains a certain type of oil. And it's this combination of extremely rapidly absorbing substances that provide nutrients for you, the host. But it's so rapidly absorbed that no bacteria or very limited bacteria have access to it before it's absorbed. And the idea is you basically 
starving them to death. And it's actually, you know, gas-wise and, and pre- and post-testing-wise, it's pretty effective with treatment of SIBO. And what's the duration of that typically? So typically, it's about two weeks. And sometimes practitioners extend that to three weeks, depending on some, how somebody's responding. Um, so, But it is a treatment where that is all you're consuming is this powder that you mix with water and you have, depending on your size and weight, you get a certain amount of servings per day that your practitioner will tell you. And that's all you consume, that and water. And you do that for two weeks. And this is why it's often the least favorite option for patients, but it is a very effective one and something I use when other treatments have failed. I was just going to ask how how difficult this is to convince patients to do. I've had a handful of patients do it, but they were my patients who were just all in, wanted to get better, super yeah. committed. So I don't know. What, mm-hmm. It sounds like you already answered that in your experience. It is one of the more difficult treatment options. Well, you know, I think, yeah, and I don't know about you, but I see a lot of people that have failed treatment. I get them referred to me or they find me in that way. And so I see usually people that have multiple food sensitivities and reactions and in a very inflamed state and have had a lot of treatments. And so sometimes the elemental diet is also a great supplement for people that have malabsorption and just are very nutritionally depleted. So so I, I also use it in that scenario. Sure. Let's move on to antimicrobials. So as a part of treatment, right? And then I want to get into the different drugs that are available as well. But kind of share with our audience some of your favorite antimicrobials. And maybe we could even break down here. I know this was a big take home for me from your course was you help to differentiate best antimicrobials for different types of SIBO. Like like take home for me, at least what I learned uh, from your course with hydrogen SIBO is to use berberine, right? And more or less with methane, more the allicin or garlic, oregano. So could you Mm -hmm. again, kind of just mention your favorite antimicrobials and then kind of break that down, expand on what I just said for different types of SIBO? Yeah, sure. I mean, you said it just now. So, uh, but yeah, so I mean, this is tried and proven, but yeah, so for hydrogen, in terms of antimicrobials, there's a lot of different formula, combination formulas available. I'm always really hesitant to name exactly what I'm doing because as you know, there's so many people that self-treat and I'm always, I see then people that have done months and months of antimicrobials and they didn't have SIBO or you know, so I'm always a bit hesitant to do the exact dose or tell you exactly what to do without the context of what you need to know. But generally speaking, yes, a berberine is a wonderful herb that we use very often for hydrogen dominant SIBO. It's a bit confusing, but allicin, which is an extract of garlic, which I've just told you garlic is a high FODMAP food. But this medicine is actually doesn't contain the fructans that are the problem in whole food garlic. So this is actually medicinal ingredient extracted from garlic. And that's very effective for um, methane. And so is oregano oil. Again, be careful with these things because oregano oil, if you do this for months, you will also damage your microbiome, your healthy microbiome. So those would be my three top favorites. Yes. And what about for hydrogen sulfide? If someone was tested and found to be positive there, what are your favorites for that? Uh, Oregano oil is also very helpful for that. And sometimes use something called bismuth as a binder for, uh, for hydrogen sulfide. And then also putting a patient on the biphasic diet, but uh, no animal products in addition to no FODMAPs. So this is because you want to not provide any cysteine and sulfur containing 
amino acids to these sulfur, hydrogen sulfide producing bacteria. Good take home. Okay. Let's move on to medications. So what antibiotics, I don't know how many you actually use in your practice. Um, and I can kind of elaborate here too, but what medications do you use for hydrogen and methane or combined SIBO? Well, what we usually recommend is if the person doesn't want to do herbs or if they're, if they are sensitive or they failed herbs, then using uh, typically for hydrogen, it would be rifaximin or brand name Zyfaxin. That's a pretty good antibiotic that's also tried and proven, has minimal damaging effect on the normal microbiome. But it's very expensive, right? It's very, very expensive. Uh, it is super effective for hydrogen. Again, you need to understand what caused your SIBO so that you address that alongside treatment. Otherwise, you you are potentially going to relapse. So this is always something I tell my patients as well. Yeah, because with SIBO, I just feel like it for many patients, and again, this is what you specialize in, I see refractory SIBO all the time. It just keeps coming back. And patients come to me after having had refractory SIBO. <laughs> and yes. so I think, yes, getting yeah. at the root cause is just so important because you can't take antibiotics the rest of your life. That's not the, that's not sustainable. It's not a good management strategy. No, yeah. it yeah. isn't. And then for methanogens, the, the recommendation is rifaximin and neomycin, but some practitioners do neomycin, sorry, uh, rifaximin and metronidazole or flagell, which is more broad spectrum, so more damage to the large intestine. Uh, but some people, you know, it always depends on how severe the case is. So that's also done. And, you know, that would be the primary types of antibiotics that would be uh, the treatment. And then for, you know, prokinetics is not any something that everybody needs, as I've mentioned. You've got all sorts of reasons why somebody has developed SIBO. And there's this idea that you just put everyone on prokinetics, which are medicines that aim to normalize the motility of the small intestine. But yeah, so you have different versions of or different prescriptions that are that are used, something like Procalopride or Resolor, the brand name Resolor is very good. Or you can have naturals like, you know, ranging from herbs like ginger and artichokes to bitters to Iberogas. So there's lots of different things that we that we consider, but case by case basis. I want to go back to the various treatment options just for the listeners so they can kind of hear also the duration. So you kind of already mentioned that elemental diet is only a few weeks. So although it may be difficult, it sounds like it's, you know, a short treatment antibiotics are usually, you know, 10 to 14 days. And then the herbal antimicrobials usually take a lot longer. So four to six, I've even treated patients for eight weeks. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And especially with methane, it's not uncommon to do it for three months or more, you know, but typically with hydrogen, six to eight weeks is a good, good amount of time before you retest, if you're retesting. And I always recommend to retest because it's important to understand if it's totally gone or, you know, a lot of people still have symptoms remaining, but then you test them and it's SIBO is actually gone. So that gives you the indication that you've got to look at other contributing factors. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So we just mentioned some antibiotics, but I want to go back to probiotics. As we kind of mentioned at the beginning of the episode, not tolerating probiotics could be a clue that someone could have SIBO, but yet probiotics are still important. So which probiotics do you use with SIBO? Probiotics are not often a problem for people with SIBO. That wouldn't be, sometimes they are, but not, not always. Um, I definitely but, have seen it. And I, I myself yeah. have, haven't tolerated them. So 
um, yeah. in the past. No, it's so for it, some people. Yeah, 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 for yeah. some people. But some people have, um, like, I have tons of patients who can't tolerate probiotics, but don't have SIBO, for example. Yeah, you yeah. know. So it's a bit more complicated than that. But prebiotics, which are basically um, you know, you can buy them. They're usually sometimes in formulas with probiotics. They're basically the food for the probiotics or right. for the bacteria. So what we now know is that there are really specific strains that have different effects. Well, let me just actually preface this whole thing by saying that when you take probiotics, you are not replacing or reseeding your gut. You know, there's this, this old, uh, idea that we need to change in our thinking is that probiotics, uh, you can just replenish the good bacteria you've lost when you've taken antibiotics uh, by just taking a probiotic. It doesn't work that way because it turns out that, uh, you know, the primary species, lactobacillus and bifidobacterium that are in probiotics are just a fraction of your normal microbiome. But what they are, are basically metabolic response modifiers and they somehow in have this growth effect on other key species of your microbiome and they can affect things like reduce inflammation or you know affect motility um, like bifidobacterium lactis hn019 i'm always into research strains so that we know that this is actually something that has been shown in research to be effective rather than just a combination of random strains. So I have that, then Lactobacillus plantarum 299V has lots of different research on uh, mitigating inflammation. And I mean, lots and lots of different things that, that probiotics can induce besides this other sort of uh, fertilizing or, or growth effect that it has on other key species in the microbiome. But they're transient, you know, they, you, right. the effect is only as long as you're taking them. Most companies these days, at least to my understanding, uh, and I tell patients this because sometimes they, you know, they freak out if they miss a dose of their probiotic. And I say, that's okay. <laughs> the organisms yeah. are only going to last in your system a couple of weeks and then they're gone. So yes. if you want those effects, you do need to continue to take them. And I usually recommend, you know, also rotating your probiotics. Yep. That, that's like with most things I like to rotate substances and uh, and probiotics and you know I'm not somebody who just puts somebody on something for a year and that's it sometimes that is required but most of the time I do rotate uh, ro rotate things based on need agreed um this brought up another question um, immunoglobulins they, I know they really helped me when I had SIBO do you use many of the serum derived immunoglobulins with your SIBO patients yeah yeah well yeah I do um Bovine serum immunoglobulins. This is a great little immune booster, but I also do the um, IG26, which are the egg-based um, oh. immunoglobulins. Mm -hmm. Okay. Did you know that 80% of our immune system resides in the gut? It's true, which means mucosal immunity is one of the most important factors in determining overall immune health. The mucosal barrier is at the center of interactions between the immune system and the outside world. An overabundance of microbes or toxins can and often do overload and trigger negative immune reactions, which have sweeping effects throughout the body. Fortunately, we can protect ourselves with something called SBIgG. SBIgG is the only purified, dairy-free source of immunoglobulin G, IgG, available as a dietary supplement. Pure IgG helps to maintain a healthy intestinal immune system by binding a broad range of microbes and toxins within the gut lumen. 
Simply put, when the toxins are bound to SBIgG, they cannot interact with our immune system and we're better protected from illness and disease. Free from dairy, saturated fats, cholesterol, sugars, GMOs, hormones, and antibiotics, SBIgG is a safe choice for all patient types. With over 40 human clinical trials for a broad range of patient types, SBIgG is my go-to choice to help support the immune cells in our GI tract. This comes in a powder or capsule version. Use code IgG for 10% off at yourlongevityblueprint.com. I want to briefly, I feel like we have to mention CFO because we've spent so much time on CBO, but many patients who have CBO also could have CFO. <laughs> and there's a lot of a lot of overlap with symptoms there. But can you expand kind of on what that is and what maybe, you know, differentiates that? And then we can talk just briefly about some um, treatment options for that too. Yeah. And I would say CFO is probably way more common. There was one study from Dr. Rao a few years ago that showed that about 25% of patients that he tested, and this was through duodenal aspirates, that he found that they had SIBO alongside CIFO. That was about 25% of people that were comorbid with those two conditions. But I think it's it's really, really common because when you think about it, candida is a really normal organism. So what we're talking about, CIFO stands for small intestine fungal overgrowth. And fungus is just really, really common when we think about how much we're exposed to antibiotics. And, um, you know, fungal overgrowth is a, is a natural consequence to overuse of antibiotics, whether that's through oral prescription or just eating a lot of meat that has horm- that have not just hormones, but antibiotics, because antibiotics are used in uh, fattening up livestock. So this is something we also consume. And it really has this massive effect on our microbiome that keeps normal fungal colonies in check. And so either that or the immune system is down and, and fungus can proliferate. And it's mostly candida species in the in the gut. And they're, you know, they love a warm, moist environment, whether that's behind your refrigerator or in your gut. It just is fungus loves us, you know. So it's one of those fungal species that can survive very, very well in our gut. Uh, and especially if we feed it a uh, lot of sugar, a lot of simple carbohydrates, a lot of processed foods, fungus loves that. And so you can imagine that a lot of people probably even, you know, they might test negative for SIBO, but they have all the classic SIBO symptoms. You might want to consider that they actually have a case of CFO. So that would then mean that you're, you don't have to be as strict with your fermentable carbohydrate restriction, but you do want to restrict uh, sugars and alcohol and simple carbohydrates and those kinds of things whilst you treat with um, antifungals. Yes. And I, I remember you saying, I believe patients who have CFO can have similar symptoms as SIBO, right? But they may also have brain fog. They may have this history of rashes or obvious yeast infections, or, you know, that maybe that patient that can't tolerate the sugar. Those could be, I keep coming back to the word clues or cues mm-hmm. in this show. Yeah. But yeah. They that, might be. Yeah. yeah. That CFO could be a problem for that patient. Yeah. I often see people that say, you know, I had, I had, let's say sinusitis or something. I got all these antibiotics for it and my gut's never been the same since. Right. That would be a big clue for me. Yeah. And that, I see a lot of that. And then you already kind of alluded to the treatment options being, um, well, probably natural antifungals. Do you typically use botanicals or sometimes do you use antifungal medications for these patients? I do. Um, I do all of that. I do different types of antifungals. If they 
can get a prescription for nystatin. Nystatin has a great little um, antifungal that works really well, is very safe, is not absorbed. That doesn't cause any liver problems and it can be used long term. I prefer that because it has very minimal impact on um, the microbiome, for example. And then lots of different herbs can have antifungal activity or your things like caprylic acid, uh, you know, undesanoic acid, monolaurin, you know, all of those different things can help. But it's really about reestablishing normal controls in the gut, which means um, a microbiome restoration type approach. So I'm glad we went over SIBO. I want to, as we wrap up the show, ask you a couple extra questions moving away from SIBO. I know in the opening of the show, you mentioned how important the microbiome is just to inflammation and, you know, longevity. Well, I should say reducing inflammation and, and to longevity. But can you kind of mention the gut brain connection? And so how important gut is gut health is in relationship to mental health? Just quickly. Yes. So the gut brain axis has been, you know, I mean, that's another whole long topic, yeah. uh, but it is basically how the central nervous system is connected to the digestive tract because the digestive tract actually has a nervous system all on its own that is sort of independent of the central nervous system called the enteric nervous system. But the central nervous system gets constant messages from the gut in terms of microbial metabolites. The microbiome also produces um, neurotransmitters, for example, and neuropeptides. It, It the microbiome secretes cytokines to stimulate different inflammatory conditions. So it constantly updates the central nervous system on the state of the digestive tract and whether or not it should uh, respond to a certain thing, a certain situation. The subject of intense research in an ongoing research, because it turns out that it has a much more central role than previously believed that these microbes really have um, a very important function for our health and well-being that is beyond just digestive health. We mentioned at the beginning of the show that one of the root causes of SIBO could come down to stress. And I I know a lot of my listeners, a lot of us are dealing with, with stress. So I'd love for you to mention some of your kind of vagal tone exercises just kind of to help with stress management. Could you share some of those? with us? So vagal tone exercises are just one aspect of of mitigating stress, right? (laughs) So that is not the one size fits all for somebody who, you know, I see a lot of people that have had very traumatic events occur to them that have an, you know, a very dysfunctional limbic system response that are stuck in fight or flight and their fear center is just chronically activated. And you cannot do vagal tone exercises alone with them. You know, they're going to need a little bit more work on uh, and maybe do trauma work. And there's like a whole subset of treatments that are uh, based on either adverse childhood events or ongoing trauma. And that would be like somatic experiencing or, you know, the EMDR, those types of therapies are really specific for people with trauma. And oftentimes I refer for that. If somebody has had, for example, let's say traumatic brain injury, they had an accident, then yes, maybe vagal toning is really appropriate for them. And that could be anything from, you know, there's whole books and exercises based on eye movement and breathing and toning like that, or different apparatuses. Some people respond really well to get into a parasympathetic nervous system response or rest and digest with hypnotherapy or tapping or anything like that, that just downregulates the nervous system and helps to reset. But if you look at 
the, you know, the whole polyvagal theory. I mean, it's a whole nother topic because it's not just as simple <laughs> as vagal toning, you know. Right. And I always tell people about that because so many people are frustrated with the gargling and the humming and the this and the that. And they're not really having any kind of impact on, on their digestive health. So it just means that this is a much bigger topic. Don't be discouraged if you've done that and you haven't gotten anywhere. It just means you have to look maybe at different types of modalities that might be more appropriate for you. And then what role do toxins play in gut health? This is obviously something that is also a much bigger topic. But basically, we are consuming, if you're not eating a uh, a very clean and healthy diet and, and not making an emphasis on organic foods, then it's, you know, chances are you are consuming um, a degree of pesticides and fertilizers and other substances that directly impact your microbiome. And glyphosate would probably be on the top of my list for that, which is the active ingredient um, of Roundup. So that's that's one aspect is just getting it in through the food. Um, and then also different types of plasticizers and solvents and those kinds of toxins that make their way potentially in our food into our food chain, but also you know, consuming it through water bottles and like plastic water bottles, plastic wrap, styrofoam, that kind of stuff. And those kinds of what we call xenoestrogens or chemicals that can act like estrogen and other types of endocrine disruptors can actually um, affect your microbiome as well. So, you know, those kinds of, when you look at anything, everything that impacts the microbiome, it's really no wonder that a lot of us are walking around with a severely compromised microbiome. So it's beyond just SIBO, but it's, you know, this is why I always emphasize once you've treated SIBO, once you've treated your underlying cause, the work begins on restoring your microbiome as much as possible. I totally agreed. I know I was trying to cram a lot into the show. So <laughs> some of these questions, is just hard to answer in, you know, two minutes. But I do tell yes. my patients, you know, three major things can impact their gut health. Obviously, the foods they're eating, having gut infections, and then toxins as well. So yeah, we, we crammed a lot in here. For those who are listening, I do highly recommend, um, the, especially if they're practitioners, that they take your SIBO practitioner course. I, I know one of our other nurse practitioners here already signed up for it, and it just dives into so much more. Like all of the elements that on the show where, where you're saying this is a larger topic, right? You dive into that into genomics and LIBO and CIFO. And I think if I remember yeah. right, mast cell activation issues and parasites and whatnot, not just SIBO. So it was just, it was a great course. So maybe let's Thank go you. there. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Tell mm-hmm. listeners where they can find you and, and even that course. Yes. Yeah, so my main website is thecibodoctor.com and I have a patient course for a SIBO patient course. That's a self-guided course where I recommend different products and different treatments and different therapies. And um, it's a really, I put a lot of effort, same as with the mastery course. And you learn a lot about everything from leaky gut to food sensitivities to all these different peripheral issues that we see with SIBO. And I have a lot of other practitioner courses on there. And as you mentioned, the SIBO Mastery course, which is a really popular practitioner course. And then you get listed in the SIBO Treating Practitioner database. So there's lots of different courses as well, pediatrics and liver and gallbladder and lots of different courses that really help the practitioner understand these functional digestive issues a bit more. Yes, I I want to take that one too. (laughs) So the SIBODoctor.com for the listeners. 
uh, social media? Are you on social media? Yes, I have an uh, basic. Yeah, Instagram is uh, it's a long one. <laughs> Maybe put it in the show notes, but it's dr.nirala.jacobi underscore the SIBO doctor. And then also the SIBO doctor on Facebook. Um, and you have a podcast. I almost forgot to mention I have a podcast. Awesome. Yeah. Yes, yeah. thank you. Yes, I have a, a podcast called the SIBO doctor podcast, and we are in our sixth year of recording. So it's been a long-standing great tool to, to for me to also interview people that have really inspired me and I'm super fascinated with. So it's been wonderful to have as a resource as well for practitioners. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a great resource. All right. So last question. What's your absolute top longevity tip if you had to pick one? I would say understand the nervous system in terms of what helps you regulate your own nervous system? So, and I can only give myself as an example. I was always a type A sort of personality. And at some point I had an epiphany that I'm just not meant for the city. And I moved into, the, <laughs> you know, moved to the country. And that was a game changer. And my whole nervous system was able to relax. And it's, that is a simple one for, for some people, but. Um, you know, some people have a lot of work to do with trauma, or they have a lot of other aspects of mental health issues that really affect their digestion. And I think if you can really dive into that and come to a place of serenity and peace, this has such far reaching effects, not just on digestive health, but on every aspect of your health. What a yeah, great way to conclude the show kind of. <laughs> Back to how we opened. Yeah, open the show. This was great. Thank you so much for coming on today and really raising awareness of SIBO and helping providers like myself miss SIBO and their patients. I've learned so much from you. So it was an honor having you on the show today. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Take care. SIBO is common and it isn't something that I want to miss in my patients. If you're struggling with some of the symptoms Dr. Jacoby mentioned today, I encourage that you get a breath test and find a practitioner who can help you with appropriate treatment. And lastly, be sure to check out her SIBO Doctor podcast and website. Be sure to check out my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. And if you aren't much of a reader, you're in luck. You can now take my course online where I walk you through each chapter in the book. Plus, for a limited time, the course is 50% off. Check this offer out at yourlongevityblueprint.com and click the course tab. One of the biggest things you can do to support the show and help us reach more listeners is to subscribe to the show. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I do read all the reviews and would truly love to hear your suggestions for show topics, guests, and for how you're applying what you've learned on the show to create your own longevity blueprint. This podcast is produced by Team Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, wellness is waiting. The information provided in this podcast is educational. No information provided should be considered to be or used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always consult with your personal medical authority.